0: So, uh, first of all, welcome to uh, this event with, uh, or conversation with uh, Flo Tomein, or Tumain and uh, Aslak. Uh, it was a bit of an uh, imp- improvised event when we heard that Tamain was there, thanks for coming uh, And that she was in Oslo. And we uh, threw it all together on a Friday uh, Friday afternoon. Tamain is an author, activist, and is prominent in uh, in Nigeria and in uh, in uh, in Africa in general. Uh, she writes uh, frequently for this outlets, and her work has been uh, translated into many languages. And uh, she also spoke at some few many seen It was linked on the on the Facebook event. Uh, she spoke on the tech labels, <coughs> TEDx labels. Um, And to talk with her today is Aslak, and is prominent uh, also in in literature, culture, uh, politics, and uh, football. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So without uh, further ado, first of all, um, before I go, Um, after this event, we put the table on at uh, Cafe Sara on so anyone who wants to <coughs> join for a beer or a drink and maybe some dancing afterwards and it's welcome to join us so without further ado uh, let me introduce us and to me first of all can you see and hear us yes, yes. and if you use your
1: normal voice to me, can they see and hear you
2: hello yes yes good <laughs> good,
1: good. It's an honor to be here. Uh, thank you for the invata- invitation. And I'm uh, particularly honored to be here with Ulutemine uh, uh whom from now on I will call Tene, uh which is possible to pronounce. Uh, Tene is, uh, as you said, she's a writer, she is an activist, she's a journalist. Uh, she's a prominent feminist, both in Nigeria and in the uh, feminist community across Africa and Pan-Africa. Uh, most famed, I think, not for her ex lagos ex-Lagos talk, but for her TED talk that was uh, presented in uh, Uganda, if I'm not wrong. Uh, Tanzania. Tanzania, uh, which it's called Who Belongs in the City? And just today when I checked, it was seen by 1.88 million people. Uh, Alongside the 100,000 that seen on YouTube, we're closing up to two million people who have seen that talk, and even for TED, that's quite a lot. But the reason she was there is that for a long time she has been writing and been what we could call a Twitter activist on uh, particularly feminist issues, but also socialist issues, and working uh, amongst others with uh, the question of informal settlements, housing, and slum dwellers in Lagos, which was the issue at stake at that time domain also writes for b as you mentioned. She also writes regularly for Nigerian magazines, newspapers. She's been translated to Japanese, of <coughs> all you know, uh including, and, and of course, including Norwegian. Uh, and I guess she's here in the capacity as all but The reason she's in Norway was that she uh, attended a... Uh, Urban Agenda event, or uh, uh, was a conference earlier this week, uh, where prominent speakers from all over the world on urbanization we're speaking, and they're also my friend, Tamay. And I call her my friend Tamay because she is also a, a close friend of mine, and I am sitting here in a Yoruba trap, I think, a traditional Yoruba costume for men, uh, <laughs> that she gave me some years ago. So if you think I'm strangely dressed, it's not me, it's you who are strangely dressed. <laughs> but I'm a proper. <laughs>
2: That's a very generous introduction, Esther. Okay.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the introduction is generous, but uh, just wait for the first question, (laughs) (laughs) because uh, it's easy to describe what you don't know, what's unfamiliar to you. Uh, I guess if you were to describe Norway, you would have done it faster and more precise or accurately than I could do. Then again, I would have used a couple of hours or days, so it's not that difficult. But I want you to talk to this crowd who... uh, Perhaps have been to Nigeria, perhaps haven't at all, all interested in uh, political, social, and cultural issues regarding uh, the African continent, particularly South of Sahara. And if you were to describe Nigeria to them
3: mm.
1: as a society, uh, seen from your perspective, you <coughs> a young woman and feminist and writer, how would you describe Nigeria?
2: Uh, I would say. Nigeria is a very conservative place, that's the first thing. Um, people say it's tradition, but I, I don't think it's necessarily tradition. I think it's a combination of um, this Western middle class ideal that we inherited from about 100 years ago and haven't updated. Um, <laughs> and certain patriarchal ideas of how society is organized. So. The society is very communal, but also that community is based on some assumptions that certain members of the community will be responsible for maintaining that communal sense. So women, mothers, grandmothers, aunties, (coughs) daughters, sisters are the ones who do the work of maintaining the familial and communal bond. And then there's the traditional idea that the man works and the man is superior and the family, as in the father, the mother and the children, are the core of society, which is not necessarily historical, it's much more recent. Originally, I think the concept of family was much broader than um, a heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman and the children that they produce. But now, with middle-class status being as aspirational as it is, then that's what people want, and that's what people understand as normal, right. Um, I would say that it's also a very unequal society economically and socially and it's a very class conscious or status conscious society. The first time I was in Oslo I was scandalized by the taxis because I just could the taxis they're driving benzes as taxis my grandmother would have had a heart attack because the bench is like the thing that you save and save and save and you buy it and then you save it still for the wedding on Saturday to show off to your relatives that you have finally arrived in life, right? So the idea that it's just running around in a bench, my God. But yes, the, 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 and I was playing a song for Camilla yesterday as well. It's like um, That basically says, what have I achieved in life if I never buy this bench?" Because there's also that being, where because the society is so unequal, but when wealth is present, it's so plentiful and so visible that people aspire very actively towards that kind of wealth. Even though the routes to building that kind of wealth are very limited and not very accessible to the broader society. But that, that inequality is, as you might know, the result of badly managed oil wealth. If we had the same sense that you guys in Norway have, we wouldn't be where we are today. I was talking. The sovereign wealth fund is in almost every country in the world. We don't have a sovereign wealth fund. We just have very wealthy sovereigns. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's one of the sources of the inequality. And then, of course, there's the my favorite, the gender thing, right? So there's social inequality and economic inequality and there's gender inequality and um. Of course, it looks like different things depending on where you are in the country because Nigeria is massive. Anybody know how many people there are in the country? Who's not Nigerian? (laughs) (laughs) Anybody? So there's... 200 200 200 million? Around 200 million of us. And 80% of the country is rural and 70% of the country is living in poverty. So the manifestations of gender inequality are varied across the country, but it's one of the things that's very fixed. So for me, as a relatively privileged middle class young woman in Lagos, it means that you know, my father and my brother think, or they used to think, now they know better, that they can control my life. But mm-hmm. um, for a girl who grew up in more rural communities in the north, for instance, it would mean the possibility of never having gone to school and being married at the age of 12 to somebody two, three times her age and having that marriage last only three or four years, and then being kicked out, and having a, and having to find another husband. So the the possibilities for women are restricted, but restricted in different ways depending on where you are in the country. But that's that's the terrible stuff, right now. There's yeah, also because the the there's a lot of good stuff, right? <laughs> it's also really energetic and really creative place. I think that um, because the structures are so Badly managed. People find ways to cope in ways that are just really innovative and really interesting, and are, the culture is very vibrant as a result. Regardless of where you are, people are creating um, in response to their circumstances, in response to political conditions, in response to all kinds of things. So, there's a lot of energy and a lot of cultural output, and I think that's part of why Nollywood is so dominant around the world. Nigerian music is so dominant around the world. Um, <laughs> you go to East Africa, for instance, and their TV stars are trying to fake Nigerian accents. <laughs> <because> <laughs> Nigeria is aspirational. So we have a lot of creative energy as a result of that. And then because the society is so communal as well, um, it, it is impossible, I think, to live or t- even to suffer in isolation. Um, It's very, very, very rare to see a genuinely homeless person who is alone. So even if people are homeless, they're living in some sort of cooperation with other people who have similar circumstances. And I think that that's because we haven't necessarily adopted the individualism that might be common in other societies. Yeah.
3: That
1: was impressive. Thank you. (laughs) I try. can I ask you a not too serious question as well? Sure. First time I was in Nigeria and the second time I was turned back to my hotel room by my host at the time, Jamal Adice, because uh, I wasn't presentable. Oh, my clothing just <laughs> That's why I gave you this
2: outfit. Yes. <laughs> I, was, I
1: was wearing shorts, uh, and she was, You cannot go to my workshop looking like that. Get back. Uh, and the second time, I was wearing jeans, and there was, uh, was a hole in it. Also, You're a big man, I so see. You can't go like that. And she sent me back. Uh, and I started noticing that I had to bring two or three suits to go to Nigeria uh, to blend in. Uh, not to look at stand out, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and I talk to people, and they say that Nigerians are the clearly best dressers in Africa and perhaps the world. So, what's this thing? Is it? <laughs> is it, is it is
2: well, it? I think the Senegalese are better dressed than us, but um, we we don't do badly at all. I think it's, it's something that we take for granted that mm-hmm. you will make an effort and. Uh, mm-hmm. We, we make an effort, and we're good at making that effort. So uh, the thing where you show up in shorts is, yeah, I would have done the same. Mm. You, it just, I think it's also, I don't even know that it's necessarily out of politeness or consideration for your hosts. I think it's just that you don't want to embarrass yourself because everybody <laughs> else is going to look good. So, mm. And then we, we take pride in, um, in dressing up. So, at, at our celebrations, at weddings, someone will choose. The, the, usually, the person having the event will choose a specific fabric, and then everyone will go and make just the most dramatic outfits out of it. <laughs> and it's like, you can never wear this thing again because everyone has seen you in it, even though it cost you a ridiculous amount of money. It's just that's what you do, right? Because it's, <coughs> it's a cultural thing, but still, the Senegalese have something. Are there Senegalese people here? <laughs> no? Okay, so Nigerians are the best dressed.
4: <laughs> 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 okay,
1: but this, uh, you're describing, and uh, I must say you did that very well in a much shorter time than I would have done about Norway, uh, your society. Uh, we have these debates in Norway and maybe all over the world uh, on whether the world is progressing or not. Uh, and some of us then raise our hands and we count the people living in poverty uh, while others raise their hands and they count the people who are entering the middle class and who are moving out of poverty or starvation. Uh, and we don't seem to be able to agree on the numbers. Uh, so I don't want you to ask, I don't want you to answer these true numbers, because that's not we can go other ways to see that, but seen from the ground do you live in a society, society that is progressing on these uh, on economic issues? Yes, is, on economic issues, on equality, on these things. Do you do you have a feeling of progress or what's economically?
2: That? No, um, I think especially with the current regime. Um, so we made the very ill-advised choice to re-elect a former military dictator mm-hmm. as our president, which, in hindsight, was not very smart, but um, as a result of that, um, our economy is in a very bad state right now. So, our debt profile is higher than it has been since we returned to democracy almost 20 years ago, even though we got debt forgiveness about nine years ago. So, when you it's and and it, it shows in that the middle class, whatever that is, in Nigeria has shrunk significantly because you, our middle class is very often really just people who have a stable salary that's not too bad. And because inflation was so terrible and people, so many people lost their jobs, uh, people have been living much harder lives in the past two years than, say, in 10 years prior. and it, for instance cereal that used to come in boxes that you would buy for maybe a thousand naira, a thousand five hundred and now they make these tiny little sachets that are designed to last only a day and it's not just cereal it's everything it's cooking oil it's spices it's so people and i think and these things didn't exist two years ago and i think it's in response to the fact that people just don't have the kind of money that they used to have to do their weekly shopping, for instance, or their monthly shopping, so now they have to buy <coughs> things on a daily basis. So economically, things are getting much worse than they were, and a lot of people are leaving the country um, legally and illegally, which is creating other problems for neighboring countries. But socially, um, I think socially, as from my perspective as a young woman who is trying to um, figure out how to make Nigeria a bit less hostile to its women, there have been some, some small signs of progress. There are some conversations that are being had in the public sphere today that just weren't even possible five years ago, right? Conversations about gender, about the distribution of responsibility within marriage, about the value of marriage itself, for that matter. Um, about people's access to reproductive resources, um, contraception, healthcare. Um, about really all kinds of issues that were considered taboo and that were too um, that people were too not just embarrassed but afraid to talk about in the public sphere. And these conversations are happening louder and louder. And I I suspect that part of that is is or rather I suspect that it's partly limited to middle-class women with certain kinds of privilege already. So I I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a nationwide thing. Mm -hmm. But still, I think the fact that these conversations are happening at all in the mainstream Mm -hmm. is a sign that some things are shifting.
1: But could that be a sign that you can see some of the same things happening in in Nigeria as does in the U.S. or European states that you have a division the where there's one progressive development amongst the middle class mm-hmm. concerning social issues mm-hmm. or intellectual issues or, or I, uh, identity policies yes. while the gap between these economically and <coughs> the poor or mm-hmm. the un- underprivileged is still getting bigger wider yes
2: yes I think that that's reflective of the truth yes it's and so sometimes it does feel as if some of these conversations that are being had are not necessarily even if they're productive they're not necessarily the most pressing issues. Um, but I think for young Nigerians in particular the issues, pressing issues are so overwhelming that it can feel pointless or futile to discuss them because for instance um, recently a coalition of young people interested in elected office and electoral politics um, came together to get a bill through (coughs) the that was recently signed into law called Not Too Young to Run and the, the idea was to re- lower the age at which you could run for elected office at the local level and in the, and in the parliament. And that was a huge victory, right? But some of the clauses in the bill that were taken out, some of the clauses that would have made it possible for young people to actually be able to afford to run, because Nigerian politics, unfortunately, as with everything else in Nigeria, is fueled by huge amounts of money. so. To be nominated, for instance, to pick up a nomination form for a local government office costs 1.3 million naira, which is an annual salary for a middle-class young person who has a university degree. (laughs) It's like who has you haven't even actually gone through the screening process. You don't know if your party is going to actually let you run. Nobody's going to. Pay that kind of money, and so some of those clauses were taken out, so the law says that you can run for office, but in actual fact you can 't because mm. you can 't afford to so when you think about and, and that bill was in was going back and forth in the house for two years, and this is one of the things that has managed to actually sign into law another law that people have been fighting for is the gender and equal opportunities bill which <laughs> we don't know will ever actually be signed, because they keep taking it out and watering it down. So at that level, you're, you're struggling for things that even when you succeed, the success is tarnished. And so it can feel like that is not the most productive way to do things. And Or people just feel like it's easier to talk about things we can talk about amongst ourselves, even if, it, even if those things are not things that necessarily affect the broader population.
1: Mm. Uh, you t- mentioned lots of factors, but there's one I need you to talk some more about to describe Nigeria, and that is uh, the question of religion and the power of the church in the south. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it to you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't describe how religious I feel Nigeria is, but I'll do it. you How much time
3: <laughs> no,
1: you got? No, you did short, but but is. Is because, th- let, let's put it another way, when you move to uh, Lagos, uh, wherever you move, uh, you will see churches in a way, I've only seen one other place in the world, and that was in the street that's called Pergranskort and Stavanger, what we used to call it the mission missionary street, because it was 150 churches in about 500 meters. Uh, but this is all over. I haven't yeah. been anywhere in Nigeria where this is not the fact. And I've only been to the south, so I haven't seen the mosques. So I don't know what it's like in the north. Uh, and everybody has stickers that praises God, talks about Jesus. If I crash this car, it's because Jesus wanted me to it. Mostly, it's the opposite. Uh, <laughs> if I don't crash, it's because Jesus saves me. So, but but it it's all over. Mm-hmm. Religion is all over. So so the question is more like. Uh, is it because religion can be fake, it can be ritual right? Religion can be something you say but don't believe, it can be things you do tradition and all that or it can be existential belief mm-hmm. metaphysics mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I guess my question to get closer not just stating that in Nigeria there are many churches and they have priests and they are patriarchs is, is Nigeria is, is this a metaphysical religion? is this existential? Is it a, a, a believing society or is it tradition or or ritual? I
2: think it's it's both. Um, I think, first of all, there's so much inequality, people need to have something to hold on to, to give them hope and to make sense of the things that that destroy hope, right? So there's that. Then, (coughs) also, I think, (laughs) Since So I think maybe until the 70s or the 80s, according to what I've read and what I've been told, religion in Nigeria, and and it's also reflected in my family, especially among middle class people, was a nominal thing. It was a thing that you did as a social activity. So you had a church that you belonged to, and it was just, yeah, it was like a country club. And then in the 70s and 80s, and it's not just exclusive to Christianity, also with Islam, there was a wave of like fundamentalism that just swept the whole country, and all of a sudden people were wearing hijabs everywhere, and church posters were going up everywhere and so um, and it spread across the university campuses, which I think was very smart because you get the people in in the universities and it just it just propagates itself naturally they go on to have children they're working in industries it just and so now um Religion is no longer just a personal thing or a personal belief system. It's now it's a fixed social category. So you can be Christian or you can be Muslim or you can be... What are you? Traditional. In that way. It's Traditional. The people <laughs> don't even factor that in. So they will ask you, are you a Christian? No. Oh, so you're a Muslim. And it's like, actually, I'm... No, but it's... It's now a, a way that people decide whether or not you're normal. Um, and then, of course, it, it has these, as, as Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism in particular has gotten more and more entrenched, it has all of these manifestations where churches are just tens of thousands of people are attending specific churches. And now the, the pastors and leaders of these churches are more than just religious leaders. They're they're cults of personality. They have followings that are uncritical and cannot detach their faith in God, for instance, from their faith in the man of God. And so there are immense abuses that are happening around this kind of unchecked power. And then the state uses this power to its advantage, because then when elections roll around, politicians that everybody knows are immensely corrupt will just go to a pastor and kneel down in front of the pastor and the pastor will endorse him and everybody's like, Oh okay, great, so clearly this is the person that we're supposed to vote for. Or I don't I don't I haven't seen that happening in the north, but also I think um, with the Muslims, maybe because they don't have those men of God in that way, then it's less easy to get to manipulate people into making voting choices. But still the the religious thing is, has become such a bedrock of how we organize society. And it's not necessarily even a faith thing, because I think if you have faith in God and in a holy book that prescribes your behavior, then it should show up in your behavior, right? But it doesn't. So, so, so people are, they go to church every Sunday. And the thing I said about the weddings with the outfits, there's a hashtag on Nigeria social media called church flow and it's really just showing off your church fashion and it's like <laughs> you no know, it's, it's a thing so young people will go to uni and maybe not go to church for most of those years but then when they come out and then you have to go back to to being a normal person then you start going to church also to find a husband or a wife depending on how old you are and then you you create a social activity or, or you signal to the society through your practice of some kind of recognizable religion that you're a normal member of society, regardless of what your faith or personal belief actually is.
1: I was very tempted to ask you because you said uh, you look for a husband or a wife, no matter depending on how old you are. Yeah. it's like when you're a teenager, you look for a wife, and then you change looking for. A wife. <laughs> no, you look I for wish was I wish not Because that's new to me. I, I no. know lobsters have this. <laughs> like I didn't know that, uh. no. no, it's not that. Okay, good, no. good. Now, uh, uh, we need to talk because we talk. We need to talk about feminism. Uh, as well. I mean, I have five pages of questions and we've almost done one, so uh, <laughs> uh, we can stay here for the whole storm. Uh, there's more pizza and we can leave when the storm is over tomorrow. Somebody gets some beer. Uh, but but uh, uh, you identify, identify fero- f- this is a difficult English word, ferociously as a feminist. Ferociously. Uh, when I was uh, introduced to you the first time, when you were a pupil in Tawada's class, you were part of what was uh, nicknamed. I haven't even heard you talk, she said it's and then you have the militant. Uh, the violent bisexual feminist league. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh,
2: the militant Yoruba bisexual. Yeah, yeah, no, no, they were <laughs> there was not, no Yoruba there. There were
1: there only all Yoruba. <laughs> but, but 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 so so and, and Claire, you are feminist and, and you were very active in social media, in Nigerian debate, in international debate in these issues. But it wasn't always so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want you to be personal uh, and give us because you were a church girl. Uh, <laughs> uh, so how did you go from being uh, a church girl to becoming a feminist? What changed?
2: You say that it's impossible to, in fe- to be feminist and a church mm-hmm. girl. Mm-hmm. I think it is, but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but <laughs> you
1: hold the opportunity open that somebody <laughs> else <laughs> can <could laughs> manage. Yes, know.
2: okay. I was so yeah. I was a church girl, and I I think that's. The vast majority of Nigerians. My mother was one of the the university students who got caught up in the wave of Christian fundamentalism in the 80s, and as a result, um, I I must have given my life to Christ at least once a year, from when I was like eight to when I was like 13, just to make sure, you know. Mm -hmm. Just I I feel like my insurance is going. I'm gonna just go and renew. And unfortunately, for both my mother and my faith, I got pregnant in university. And I have mentioned that I had a fairly privileged upbringing. Um, and what that does for you in Nigeria at least is it insulates you from some of the more difficult aspects of being female in that society. Because in Nigeria, money is king, right? So there are certain things that you don't have to deal with if you can, if you have um, economic or financial resources. But then I got pregnant and... No matter how much money you have, if you're pregnant, then it's, and you're not, you don't have a husband, you know, then it's like, OK. <laughs> and <laughs> so for the first time, I, I started to actively deal with some of the prejudices that people have towards young women in Nigeria. Because um, for some reason, it never occurred to me to be ashamed of the fact that I was pregnant. I didn't realize that I was supposed to be mm-hmm. ashamed until people started asking me, ah, you're not ashamed. Uh, but we all, I thought we were all fucking. No, just, it was just me. <laughs> my bad. <laughs> uh, but it just, it, that, that was the first time I, I started to realize how people interact with women who they believe deserve disrespect. And then my mother died while I was pregnant. And um, all of a sudden, my mother, my mother was very supportive and very strong. And so when I said I wasn't going to marry the father of the child, she said, oh, okay, fine, that's cool. But then she died and the, the rest of my family took that as an opportunity to try to make me do the thing that you're supposed to do when you're pregnant, which is marry the man. And I remember sitting in that family meeting, you know, my daughter's father is sitting they're not as nicely dressed. And, <laughs> and the whole family This thing goes on for like two hours and they're talking and talking. You must marry her. You must marry her. And then at some point I'm like did it occur to anybody to ask me if and I remember my grandma's brother looking at me like, why would we ask you? <laughs> and from then it just occurred to me that this is, <coughs> this is not a fluke this is what my life could be like. And it's not just my life, this is, I started to look around and to see that this is a lot of people's lives. And then I started reading Feminist Theory, which, yeah, (laughs) opened my eyes to how problematic the organization of Nigerian society is for women living in it. And then I started to talk about it. And all of a sudden, but completely by accident, I discovered a community of other young women who were also thinking about and talking about these issues. And it, I think the, it was the discovery of community that made it real to me. That I'm, I'm not imagining these things, and these things are not irrelevant to my context. These things are urgent, and these things are real. And there are many people who are grappling with these issues. And so, over time, just describing the realities of life as a woman in Nigeria, and in some instances, life as a queer woman in Nigeria, but in all instances, life as a woman who's unmarried and who's a mother and who's young and who's outspoken and never learned to be ashamed of the things that you should be ashamed of. um, Mm -hmm. I guess somehow I ended up being considered somebody worth listening to. Don't know how that happened. (laughs) And, And so the... The reality of my feminist awakening is that it was very deeply personal originally, and then it became a more communal thing. And then I, in raising, I, I gave birth to a daughter, and in raising her, it became evident to me that the things that I've been thinking about and talking about, the forces that I think about and talk about are still at play in her life, even mm-hmm. though I, I'm aware that they exist and I try to mitigate them, and so it's not enough to just have feminist politics as an individual. It's important to propagate this politics to other people so that they can understand that these things are not just individual, they're also systemic, they're also structural, and unless people are thinking structurally about changing these dynamics, then women and girls will have to live with these restrictive and oppressive ideas forever.
1: who in Nigeria would declare himself feminist
2: I uh, hmm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so I think young women so there's something that I've noticed in the in the 5 to 7 years that I've been openly feminist, It's um, <laughs> that young women tend to embrace feminist politics around maybe like 17 to like 22, young women of a certain social status, because it's liberating and it's exciting and it's useful and just affirming, but then as social pressure mounts and as the expectations of society to... To be respectable and to be wives and mothers and all of these other things that women are supposed to do. As that pressure mounts, then then they get quieter. Um, so I think. But
1: don't they get married basically? Yeah, they do get married. Mm-hmm.
2: And then once once you get married, it's like, well, <laughs> you have your husband and you are talking all this family something, it oh, will chase you out of your husband's house. You better keep quiet. <laughs> and so people just do keep quiet. Um, and then it, it's. I would say that it's usually, in my experience, it's usually women who have chosen not to conform. They've decided one way or another that they're not gonna conform to these expectations, or they're privileged enough because that's another that's another layer. There's a layer of. Respectability that comes of privilege that allows you to be feminist and respectable at the same time. So it's usually upper middle class women as well um, who would say, "Yeah, I'm a feminist." Many of them working in development. Many of them with multiple degrees. Um, but the 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 word feminist is still very much um, not. It still has negative connotations that are very strong in Nigeria. And so you see people saying things like, you know, eh, like, you can be a feminist, but don't be too feminist. You know this thing where it's like, you say, <laughs> do not. You can be a feminist, but still, you have to understand that the man is still the head of the home. Women are still the neck. So you have to, it's just like, I'm a whole human being. I'm not the neck. It's like, <laughs> what does that mean? People, people, So people w- who want to seem progressive will agree that feminism is useful to a certain extent <coughs> but once it starts to challenge these very entrenched beliefs about how the family is central to social order and how you must follow the laws of God who said man and then woman then it starts to be a little too much. And so for, for many young women, it's, it's costly. And it becomes too costly to continue to identify as feminists. But the question
1: about this, because, because you can see this as a function of ideology, mm-hmm. uh, but isn't, isn't always also possible to see it as a function of economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, the fact you say that girls seven to, 20 to 17 to 22, particularly middle class, meaning students, meaning early work life, before yeah. marriage, Are still uh, free uh, basically, also often either they have sustained get sustained by family, still and accept Mm -hmm. for that, or they have some income in a free, uh, some kind of work in an office. Mm -hmm. Uh, But once you establish a family, once you get married, uh, you have to base your income on either a family economy, which is patriarchal, or a man. Yeah. Very, very few women can su- sustain. Uh, I'm asking now. Mm-hmm. Very few men, women officially sustain the family on her own outside family, even though the work of women sustains most families.
2: Oh, but that the thing that you said about officially is very interesting because it's actually very common in Nigeria for the woman to be the one sustaining the family financially. But because. It is the man who is supposed to sustain the family. The woman pretends. Mm-hmm. This is it's, it's incredibly common. My mother did it for mm. years. So you buy a car, and it's like, oh, my husband me this wonderful car, and it's like, actually, I went with you to the shop and you paid your own money for this <laughs> car. And you buy your house and you do a housewarming and it's your husband who is inviting everyone into the thing and he hasn't worked in 17 years. But, you know, no, this is not a joke. No, <laughs> this is actually not a joke. It's, it's, it's very common. It's very, it's, it's incredibly common. So the, it's true that there is an economic cost, but I think... More, even more costly than the economic cost is the social cost. Because m- many women are solely responsible for their family's economies. But to be responsible for your family's economy and to say that you're responsible for your family's economy is completely unheard of mm. and taboo. And to be responsible for your family's economy and to try to assume the authority mm. that comes with being responsible for your family's economy is even more taboo. Mm. So for young women who um, (coughs) see that being married, or having a husband and a family is more important even than, it's it's so important that even when you are (laughs) alone in that marriage, functionally, socially, economically, whatever, they can see that this marriage thing is clearly the most important thing. And so to continue to be loudly feminist and to Diminish your chances of being acquired by a husband, that's not a self interested choice to make. Mm. So, even, and, and a lot, another thing, is tangential, is also on that getting married is an economic choice for many women as well. So, it's not as though women get into their marriages planning to be the sole breadwinner. Many women get married because they have the understanding that when they do get married, then their husband will be the provider and then it just turns out that that's not the case after they've gotten married but you're already married there's nothing you can do about it so for many young women because the economy is so unequal and because the society is so discriminatory towards women getting married is an economic choice as well and so the unfortunate thing is that you then get married to secure yourself economically only to discover Now you're responsible for your actual children and the man-child that you married. (laughs) Why do you point (laughs) to me? Sorry, now you
1: (laughs) I have an income. I promise. uh, I have. State pays me. No, uh, the question is would, I, we're going to do questions uh, from the audience afterwards and I hope somebody will ask about Feminism in Class in Nigeria because I can't take that question. Now we need to talk about writing. Uh, we need to talk about the intellectual life of Nigeria because uh, we've done uh, some depressive rounds now. Uh, truthful, I think, but still uh, painting a, a p- picture of a country where inequality uh, prospers, and uh, women are not prospering in many ways. But at the same time, at least my meeting with Nigeria, for the first time was with uh, Trulich literature, reading uh, Achebe Aditya, discovering that all the uh, African writers I'd heard of south of Sahara came from Nigeria. Uh, And uh, then going to Lagos and discovering a culture where I met not one or two, but tenfolds and tenfolds of young intellectuals, writers, uh, authors, journalists, with enormous talent and a vibrant discussion and a large network, Uh, you being one of them uh, and not alone. So uh, this literary intellectual culture, Uh, How, where does it come from, when did you discover it?
2: I think I I discovered the literary scene, I would say with Ake Festival, so there's something called the Ake Book and Arts Festival, It's, it's an annual event that holds towards the end of the year, started about six years ago. And I think for contemporary writers, at least in Nigeria, aK Festival is, and not just in Nigeria, in Africa and across the world, African writers in diaspora as well, aK Festival is an important gathering point, watering hole, a place to share ideas and to learn about the work that's being done in other languages and other places. So for me, the offline community, my first experience of an offline literary intellectual community was aK Festival. But there's a very, there's Like you said, there's been a long tradition of writing from Nigeria and especially Eastern Nigeria. Mm. Um, Because they write in English, there's also a long tradition of writing in Hausa in the north, but because Hausa is spoken mostly across the Sahel, across West Africa, it doesn't have as much global. When you say Western. East Africa, uh, East Nigeria, East Nigeria, Nigeria. Yeah, East
1: Nigeria, I mean, you mean Biafra, Iboland? Yes, Nigeria. yes, yeah. Biafra, Igbo Yeah, um,
2: people who are not necessarily from Biafra, what used to be Biafra, but close, closer to there than the south, for instance.
1: Because well, I wanted to say that, but since you're ro- I didn't, I didn't want to do the Ibo <laughs> thing now. <laughs> no, but, but, but but this is truthful that there's a in the Ibo culture there's an extremely strong. written and intellectual tradition, right?
2: Uh, But also I think it's not just, it's not exclusive to Igbo culture. I think what I've seen is that Igbo writing is generally more accessible because there's a lot of fiction writing Mm. by Igbo writers, right? Whereas Yoruba people, because we we like to think that we're so fancy and intelligent, that we write like nonfiction treatises on like the history or you know, right, no, right, no, 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 no. so it's yeah. quite less interesting and just doesn't have as much international traction except Inka, who I find unbeatable but don't, don't don't quote me. Um,
1: you find unreadable, yeah. I yes. thought I thought you said unbeatable and I was like, no, oh no. He's, I <laughs> no, I
2: can't read him. No, nobody can beat him. He does it on purpose. But yeah, uh, no, his autobiography <laughs> is really good. Oh really? I I just gave up after I came to Benkelmer. But yes, so a lot of the writing that comes out of Nigeria is from Eastern Nigeria, but there's a, also there's also a huge body of work that's contemporary and historical from the north, and I think there was a bit of a break in the eighties and nineties. There was.
1: Thunder, in Anga. They (laughs) they were doing independent radio.
2: all right? Yeah, but maybe true. I never made that connection before, but maybe because the military dictatorships were just so terrible in the 90s, in particular, that nobody was writing books. Does everybody know this?
1: This was not actually a joke. Uh, During the last dictatorship, uh, Abacha. During (laughs) Abacha, from Norway and Stavanger, they run a uh, radio kudurat. Yes. So the the kind of. Resistance radio
2: was from yes. Yeah. Was run from Salanga, yes. So Nobody is is knew this, really? <laughs> wow, we go way back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I think maybe that had some sort of impact on cultural and literary production in particular. But since the early 2000s, and of course with your friend, our friend, Chimamanda, mm-hmm. you know, um, there has been a resurgence, I think, in in not just the writing, but the possibility that people see Mm. of writing as a viable and useful Mm. tool for social change, for self-expression, for whatever. So young people are very energetically embracing literature. Some of it is quite terrible, if I'm being honest. But at least people are writing, and people are experimenting, and people are doing all kinds of interesting things. So people are creating collectives Around poetry and performance, people are creating collectives around experimental films based on books. People are um, doing comics. People are—it's very vibrant and very dynamic. And there's an offline community around Ake Festival. But after Ake Festival, there's been the Lagos Theatre Festival, Lagos Poetry Festival. Lagos is the cultural and economic hub, Hmm. and also the most polluted. Um, uh, this is,
1: um, they need a ring, uh, <laughs> a tall, tall place for the traffic, oh. this is a reference to a Norwegian debate, every Norwegian city is now fiercely and violently debating, and it's actually violent, uh, the new tall places, tall booths around the cities, because for you have to, Yes, you have to pay driving through the rush. So, uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> politicians in Norway for the first time except 22nd of July and the Second World War now needs bodyguards wow because of tollboots, so it was kind of an in...
2: Oh, we have toll booths in Lagos, but all the money just goes into one person's pocket. <laughs> we need state tollboots. Okay, <laughs>
1: sorry. I but but, but uh, talking about this... this uh, literary environment and writing. Twice you mentioned something which I find very interesting. You said there is an offline community, Yes. Uh, as if that was the odd thing. Yes, Uh, oh yeah. Normally we say there's an online community, and that's the odd thing. Uh, But but that drives me through this, uh, which I told you I want you to talk about, uh, since you are so damn young. Uh, uh, You actually grew up online. And I think there's, I think I'll try to explain what I want you to comment on, because there's an idea, I don't think it's only in Norway, I think it's all over the Western world, and maybe also anywhere you go, when you go far enough away from another country, you have the idea that uh, Africa is Africa, Nigeria is Nigeria, and it's different. Uh, And when you go to Nigeria, you go to a different place. Uh, I mean, the first time I, that's 10 years ago, I think, 12, something like that. I was, I mean, the, foreign, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, not the Minister, but the Ministry of Foreign Affairs called me to advise me uh, of what I should do or not do in Nigeria and in Lagos because it was so dangerous, uh, which is the idea of the other as strange, right, the, the other place as somewhere strange, different, uh, and having their own culture which you can't understand. So I would never understand Nigerians. And uh, and I would have the same going to Cambodia or, or wherever, but, but it's particularly something about Africa as well because you have this heart no, of darkness exactly. thing yeah. and mm-hmm. colony thing going on in Europe as well. So, so it, it gets even even stronger. Uh, <coughs> and the first time I was there also I felt it was cultural uh, cultural codes which didn't translate at all. Uh, from me to them and, and the other way around. I was at stage with a kind of a Yoruba big man who was not just a big man; he was some kind of chieftain uh, oh. and TV star, and he had his staff and wife of choice. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, you didn't grow up in Nigeria, so You also grew up in Nigeria being online, mm-hmm. and and when you refer to your. Uh, intellectual uh, work and your writing you refer to an online community which is spread all over the world uh, and when you tweet you tweet with people in the US just as much as people in Nigeria uh, so it's, it's, it's a totally different kind of uh, community yeah. than, than I would imagine in Nigeria being isolated so I, w- I would ask you to, to explain us two things and it's both regarding your interaction with the world. When you were formed, when you grew up as a child, as a youth, how much did you succumb of American culture, European culture, what did you see on TV, Mm. what kind of books did you read, who were your heroes, what kind of music did you listen to? How much were you part of the same community as a Norwegian at that time, 12-year-old would have been? Uh, and, And secondly, when you then uh, grow uh, to become a feminist and an activist. How much interaction did you have then and do you have now with a community that is international?
2: Well, I think the idea that, well, first of all, Nigeria was colonized by the British, right? Uh, like most of our neighbors, colonized by some European power or the other, just like you guys, right? Um, <laughs> and so we have. A relationship with the West that can very easily be taken for granted. Um, A lot of our aspirations are towards Western sensibilities, and a lot of what we consume is Western. And that's, I think, it's always been the case. I think about my grandfather, for instance, who was always a very sharp dresser, but would never wear this. Mm. It's only, in fact, it's only now that that wearing this has become stylish in the mainstream, but my grandfather was always in a suit. He and my my grandmother would sometimes wear traditional clothing. But it was it was I think more about that divide between the public and the private space. You know, the man existing in the public space, the public space being more a mirror of the West, and the woman existing in the domestic space, which is more traditional and closer to home. So we've always had a relationship to outside. um, And it's not just a class thing. It's I'm thinking about the names of schools in Lagos, for instance. And the less indigenous sounding or local sounding the name of the school is, the, the better people assume it to be. So you go to a school that's called Meadow Hall, and you be like, oh, you go to Meadow Hall? It's like, what, the, Meadow Hall? What, what is that? <laughs> but it's, it's so, it, it's everywhere, it's in the, I grew up listening to, Jesus, Britney Spears and the Spice Girls. Um, I used to watch uh, David Attenborough on TV and uh, Faulty Towers, and I probably shouldn't have been watching Faulty Towers as a 10 year old, <laughs> <laughs> now i yeah, about it's like, wow, well, was one inappropriate black adder. I should talk to my parents about this. This is somebody was being very (laughs) negligent. Um, So there was no, I mean, we didn't even have Nollywood when I was growing up. Nollywood happened when I was an adolescent, right? Mm. Uh, So I was reading. like everybody else yeah you know the mallory towers i wanted to go to boarding school so badly and then i went to boarding school and it was nothing like the boarding school (laughs) in the books i was so disappointed it was terrible it's like hazing and senior students punishing you no cookies in the common room at night it was terrible so we've there was never that isolation and i think again it's not necessarily it's not about class because even if You didn't necessarily have access to the British Council Library like I did. You still watched TV shows or films that were Western. You still, at Christmas time, would sing Feliz Navidad. You know, most people didn't even know. (laughs) Like, I'm sure most people don't know what language that's in. Just like, Feliz Navidad, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people even think it's a Nigerian song, I'm sure, if you (laughs) ask them. So we've always had a very strong relationship to external influences that has only gotten stronger with the internet, And so maybe people who are um, lower middle class or from lower income communities aren't necessarily using Twitter all the time in the same way, but they're on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And they're forming friendships with people around the world on Facebook and on Instagram. And so even if the conversations aren't happening, again, in the same like, as the same sort of exchange, just like an intellectual thing, and we're debating France Fanon, and that sort of hoity-toity thing. There is still that exchange, and that, that mm-hmm. access is there. And Nigerians take their internet access very seriously. So we have a telecommunications industry that has that has penetrated most urban areas and many rural areas as well. And people do spend a lot of time online. So. Even if they're not like, I don't know, what do I do on the internet? Doing whatever it is I do? I can't think what I do on the yeah, internet now, but you tweet. I tweet a lot. So they're doing something, and, and <laughs> that exchange is there. And it's taken very much for granted. My daughter's nanny, who grew up on a farm uh, in south-south Nigeria, where there's no electricity and no pipe water and what are the other, then, the roads aren't paved or whatever, tarred or whatever has always had a Facebook account it's just, it's just a thing it's just like yeah I have Facebook and then now she has Instagram and stuff so it's, it's, it's there's no isolation in that way and we're very much in tune with global trends and global culture, with global meaning primarily the American and then everybody else
1: yeah, because it, I noticed the difference between your youth uh, almost prior <coughs> to the internet or, or whatever where you, all the references are British. Yes. Faulty Towers, Blackadder. That's my dad. Council, that's, that's your that's dad, but dad. Not dad only dad. your dad. There were many of those okay. uh, in Nigeria and, and, and now American. But, but talking about you said uh, about this connection towards the end uh, development is in line with uh, the rest of the world but the world isn't the right developing on a straight line, Mm -hmm. Uh, so you have different kind of uh, tendencies, trends at the same time. The last article you published, uh, or one of the last articles you published, and and what you've been talking about lately, uh, has been uh, when you, about sexuality, uh, not just as female sexuality, which you've written up before, but going out openly as queer or, or lesbian in a society where it's actually prohibited by law to be gay, isn't it?
2: Well, no, so it, it's not a crime to be gay, it's a crime to do gay, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, right. So, so, yeah. That's the difference. That's, that's the difference, yeah. yeah.
1: So, so you have to be caught in the act to yeah. actually be illegal. <laughs> yes.
2: uh, or try to get married, which which yeah. nobody would do. Yeah. Would be,
1: uh, but 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 this uh, because it reflects kind of two tendencies I think at the same time and and I want you to t- talk personally in the end about what this is like but but I see two tendencies one being that there's a larger and larger acceptance of uh, homosexuality of trans of different kinds of sexualities and ways to identify gender wise and and sexual device all over the world, particularly in the Middle-class and, and, and but of course in the US where you have these debates going totally but but uh, around, but, but it's, that's one tendency. Mm-hmm. But then you have, an, uh, on the African continent, you also have a tendency of prohibition, of fiercely fighting, which you can find in, in different parts of society elsewhere as well. So you have these two things going on at the same time. So I'm wondering... Uh, it's a stupid question, but I mean, I'm male, and <laughs> um, I can't be a girl, and I can't even, I mean, and I can't be queer. So, or, so I'm curious, what is this like? How do you navigate it? How do you? Uh,
2: how um, I think I've said a few times in this conversation that I'm fairly privileged in many ways, and I have, you know generational class privilege and generational wealth and all of that and so it makes it explicable to certain people that well for instance people assume that I've lived outside Nigeria which I, I never have and so they're like hey you know she's she's those Americans have done something to her so people people dismiss <laughs> that way um, but also because because middle class Nigerians aspire towards Western ideals, even if we don't necessarily admit it, just to appear progressive to people who are openly queer and in the middle class, there's not a lot of hostility, actually, at least not in person. On the internet, yeah, people will say all kinds of things, right, but in in, in my interactions, I would just I was just joking to one of my friends about how my girlfriend and I just go to things socially. And people are so, oh, they're just like, oh, I know this is my girlfriend, they're like, you, you. Uh, high, and they can't, they don't want to not be proper and polite because it's a middle class thing to be proper and polite. Like, <laughs> am I shaking a gay person's hand, ah! <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so in that way, being middle class, provides opportunities to publicly transgress. Mm -hmm. And my girlfriend is also quite out. She's maybe the most famous lesbian in Nigeria. Like, like I have to pick that one, right? (laughs) Um, So we don't necessarily, I've never dealt with, I mean, you do get some passive aggressive talk, but nothing nothing terrible. I think the, the worst homophobia, the more blatant more violent homophobia is targeted towards people with less privilege and i think that's why it's important for people like me with more privilege to normalize it because it's i think in the the indian people's minds have to change before the law ever changes the law is really truly i've seen quite irrelevant even when people who are from lower income groups get targeted and harassed by the police if they're actually arrested then queer rights organizations can get them out fairly easily because the law is so badly drafted. It's like, why do you have a law that says, I can't get married? I don't want to get married. Nobody's going to try. No, You can't arrest people who are not trying to get married because they look gay. What does that mean? <laughs> so it's like, oh, you, you seem gay, so I've arrested you now. But what, what is the charge? So the law itself is not the problem. It's It's the very entrenched homophobia, which is connected to the gender problem, actually, because it's the same logic that inferiorizes women, that dehumanizes queer people. It's this idea that there's a normal normative order that is divinely orchestrated and that cannot be subverted. And so God has said that the man is the head of the woman, and they reproduce and multiply, and that is normal. So a woman trying to be equal to a man is transgressive, in the same way that a woman who doesn't want anything to do with a man, which is common sense, is transgressive. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did you whisper that to me, or <laughs> <laughs> that's why I heard it? <laughs> so um, it's just it's it's people's minds that need to change, and I think because I have privilege, and other people like me have privilege, we're being more deliberate about visibility. Because then it's like, oh, this is my friend, this is my sister, this is someone I went to school with, this is somebody who I know is pretty normal. I mean, a little weird sometimes, but mostly normal. And the fact that they're gay or queer or lesbian is not my business, actually. Half the time, we're not even trying to sleep with straight people. So it's like, why do you care? Um, and, And I think that bringing the conversation home in that way, because it's happening around the world, like you said, but bringing it home in that way to people who now have tangible mm-hmm. examples of normal people who are part of sexual or gender minorities, <coughs> opening up the space for more conversation about it. So there are, there's a TV star who is gender non-conforming. Um, there's a reality show star who transitioned literally in front of Nigerian like... Publicly, Bob Risky is hugely popular. Bobrisky went from being clearly masculine presenting and a boy to now being like, oh, actually, I'm a girl. And all of this was publicly documented. And she's hugely popular. Mm-hmm. So people are seeing that, OK, I mean, I don't understand <coughs> how a boy can become a girl, but they know somebody, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> yeah, okay, Bob, Bob Risky is going to, film premieres in dresses, fully made up and people now have a, ref- a frame of reference for that kind of thing. And so if, if people's minds can change as a result of not just seeing, obviously there's also political organizing happening on the ground and people are challenging the laws, but if that mindset change can happen because of the visibility of queer people who have the resources or the privilege to absorb the costs of casual and sometimes also active homophobia, then that's the goal. Right? And navigating it is really not that hard. You literally just show up and be like, voila, a gay. Okay. <laughs> and then they good. <laughs> yeah. hmm.
1: I have a couple of other questions, but we will take this to the end. Uh, I promise to open for the audience. Shall we take a break first or just wrap it up?
0: I think we can go straight to questions. I think so to too.
1: So we'll then then everybody. Uh, I've been privileged and been allowed to ask my questions, or at least a few of them. <laughs> uh, yes.
5: Hi. My name is Bingo, and um, I'm your sister. I'm Nigerian. And I live here in Norway, and this is my third year in Norway. I'm also, I walked in when um, I think you already started talking about the oil industry or how Norway has uh, an amazing Norwegian offer of some sort, and that's true. I don't know if BTD still exists which is the Nigerian oil fund and of course Norway uh, out of all the oil industry or oil producing countries in stands out. I'm in the oil industry myself and I'm a consultant. Um, I'm on my way to Lagos tomorrow so if you're going to be in Lagos this week I'm having a presentation on Tuesday. So <laughs> <What>? yes, yes. <laughs> and I can invite you. We have a couple of uh, investment banks consulting companies Producing companies, office services, they're all coming. Uh, My question, I don't know if it's really a question, but it gears towards uh, the election that is coming up. Mm -hmm. Because I understand there's going to be election next year. And um, I did hear when you said we went into the village to bring a retiring, literally probably dying dictator, or previous dictator to become our president. Uh, It's unfortunate that Nigeria has 200 million people young people, bright people, but politics still rules the day and that had to happen. So I'm very interested in knowing what's, what's going on now because there are young people coming up and I'm mm-hmm. seeing things online, uh, you know, unconventional. I say unconventional because these are people that have not been in politics yes. and is this because of the whole, you know, uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, Donald Trump, people that never had political backgrounds and are now, you know, head of state in mm-hmm. their own respective countries. So I'm seeing the likes of the <laughs> and some <laughs> other obscure, I'm sorry I have to use the word obscure, here, but yeah. just some names, <laughs> some really random names, not the usuals that we used yeah. to see. And also the Senate president also wants to become president. president yeah. yeah, and he's from my state. Oh, yeah. yeah and I, I'm not sure, I don't know much about him, I just know that his family colonized the state, said, yeah. and now he wants to be the president. So I'm very interested in knowing more because we live on, on the ground
2: mm-hmm. and I do, so yeah. Yeah, uh, so I think, because there's been so much disillusionment since Buhari was elected president, people are very resistant to the idea of him coming back as president for a second term. And so people are very desperately trying to come up with alternatives to his candidacy. And that's, I don't know whether that's what's happening within the party. What seems to be happening within the party is that they're very comfortable with the idea of fielding him for a second term. but. But the goodwill that he ascended to the presidency on has completely disappeared, as you might imagine, because just things have gone completely left. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of outsiders, political outsiders, trying to take advantage of this uh, this openness. But I don't know whether the, the openness is real or whether it's imagined, because like I said, there are many structural barriers to, um, gaining elected office in Nigeria, not least of, uh, not least of which, is the bar- which are the barriers to the presidency in particular. Unfortunately, it seems like if anybody has the political clout and the resources to challenge Buhari's incumbency, it is Mukola Saraki, who is the current Senate president and who is manifestly interested primarily in his own political ambition rather than in like national development but because he has, he and his family have such a long history of being engaged in elected politics, he understands the system and if he has even a tangential interest in national development then he might be the most likely candidate to challenge the presidency. But Feladjaro, Eunice, Eunice, Omole, King Donald Duke, a lot of people are challenging or are running for office but most, most of the electorate or young people I know who are thinking about the political situation feel like their challenge is nominal at best for now. Maybe in the next election cycle, if they build up enough political power in this, in the next four years, then they might have a viable chance. But the feeling is generally that most of the challengers now don't stand a chance, except for possibly Gullah Saraki. yeah.
1: But if I can have a follow-up on that, because the last election, uh, when Buhari was elected, uh, uh, and I, I don't know how well you know Nigeria, there's a tradition of dividing between the north and south, uh, where you should have a president that comes from either north or south, and a vice president that comes from the other part. This is not formalized, but it's tradition, it's
2: understood,
1: yeah. uh, it's understood in this way, but it was kind of tied up because uh, the president before Goodluck Jonathan died while in office. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think actually he was dead a couple of years before, before he, was, he, admitted he, admitted he admitted that he was dead. Uh, <laughs> this is not a joke. I mean, the guy just never showed up. He uh, <laughs> was in a British hospital. But since Goodluck Jonathan took over, while an ordinary should be in office, and then just continued, there was a dispute already then that an ordinary should continue out the period, and, and this was time enough. And then when Buhari was elected, he's being an ordinary, as most of the military leaders were. And as comes to my question, it was said that this is, was an alliance between Yorubas in Lagos particularly, yes. yes. uh, traditionally south, uh, traditionally not Muslim, mm-hmm. uh, and the north that made Buhari's election because he won Lagos. He basically won a large area around Lagos as mm-hmm. well. Uh, and. It was generally accepted as I saw it at the time, there was some talk about it, but still Buhari was, was not unpopular. No, and, and, and the Igbos I talked to were like, okay, but let's try him. Good luck yeah. good John being a southerner. Ebo. Uh, no, no, no. No, 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 no because he's from the Delta, right? By Elsa, yes, yeah. so from the Delta. Yeah. So, but, but still being a southerner, uh, they were like, okay, but let's try this. But then the years have come later listening to radio, mm-hmm. reading the news, talking to people, it becomes more and more sectarian, the talk. Yes. More and more tribal.
2: Yes, but that's because Buhari himself, is he's astonishingly tribalistic, and he, where there might have been, I don't know whether because it's because he's old or because he was president before as a military dictator, but where there might have been a desire to hide or be subtle about how tribalistic he is, he's just shamelessly tribalistic, and so people are reacting to that mm. by themselves becoming increasingly tribalistic.
1: Yeah, because that's my question, is there a danger that the next election will be tribalistic?
2: There could be that danger, but because so many of the challengers don't have the base, either politically or, or institutionally, to, to challenge the people who might come in on tribalistic tickets, So, say Donald Duke, for instance, who's from the southeastern part of the country. He's very popular, but he doesn't have the political influence or the kind of base that would make his candidacy a viable challenge. The only people who have that sort of institutional power within the political establishment, because I think the consensus is that outsiders are taking advantage of the opportunities, but they don't have a real chance. Mm. So the people who do have a chance are people within the establishment. And so it's like you said, mostly northerners. So there's a who has power, but people aren't really, he's not as popular as he could be. And then there's Sar- Saraki who is from the south, but Muslim, hmm. who might actually stand a chance. Yeah. So the tribalistic thing could come up, but, but would not be sustainable.
4: Sorry, other questions? Yes. Yeah. Other, other questions? I don't have a question, but I've got some comments. I don't know if it's allowed. I don't decide this. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, uh, my name is John Ogumbono. Um, it's very interesting listening to you. You are a young, young, young woman uh, I love all you have said. Uh, you see, I've got quite a lot of uh, comments I would have loved to make, but we don't have the time. And then particularly when it comes to this political discussion, but I wouldn't delve into that now. Uh, first to you, uh, Aslak, uh, when you said you were sent back by Chima for not properly dressed. I mean it's, uh, just as she said, it's disrespectful in <laughs> our society. <laughs> uh, I have yes. improved my improved my ways. Maybe I should stand up. In my uh, in, in my ethnic group I'm a mean, Yoruba, just like her. Um, we we got a saying that says it's the way you dress that tells us how how to address you how you are how to address you if you <laughs> deserve any respect or something like that. So the fact that she sent you back was very good to for you. To <laughs> <back>. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, you see, uh, you, um, and then you made quite a lot of comments which uh, I really understood, and I I brought some comments to support your. Your views. Um, when it comes to religion, you see we have Islam and Christianity, mostly Islam to the north and Christianity to the to the south. And even to the south, when you take the southwest, Christianity and Islam they are almost the same. And
2: even in parts of the north as well, in Kaduna South and Yeah, but when you take the whole north so altogether, you
4: will find out that Islam dominates in the north. But when you come to the southwest or the South Christianity dominates. But the Southwest, that's where we have both the Christians, Christians and, and the Muslims almost alike. There's no family in any Uruguay tribe. That, the, doesn't have the that doesn't have Christian all in those intermarriages. Yes. So uh, the way we practice uh, this religious something in the Southwest is quite different from the way it is practiced in the in the North. So that's why uh, you see uh, there is no Difficult something among marriages in the in the southwest as it is in the north, and then nobody will criticize you for being a Christian or being a Muslim in the southwest. So just to clarify that, that uh, the way we practice the religion is so different from the way it is practiced in the north. Then when it comes to the economy, I'm an economist. Uh, you said uh, Nigerian economy is down low. Um, the macro economy is not there. The, uh, the, micro the micro is what you are talking
2: about. Because the talking. macro
4: economy, Nigeria has got debts, yes. But when you see the ratio of the debts Nigeria has got, the debt Nigeria has got compared to the the GDP is pretty low compared to the Americans. of the America has got three trillion in debt, but their GDP is not up to that. So it means they are worse off than Nigeria. Uh, but the micro, I agree with you, is even worse in Nigeria. Um, then when it comes to feminism, <laughs> you, re- you really uh, try it out. Those who are between the age of seventeen and twenty-two, when they are free, they, they tend to support feminism. But the moment you get married, you hey, you have to
2: conform <laughs> conform
4: to the order of marriage. Otherwise, I've got I had a friend who came here on visit. He's a middle class man. Uh, he, he left just a week ago. And then when I talked to him about all this, he, you know what he said? Oh, I don't know why you people are so liberal in Norway. That's why things are not uh, working well. And I said, Look. <laughs> 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 and what he meant by not working well is like a lot of divorce. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I told him, Look. Things are not working well in Nigeria either. Nigeria, <laughs> Nigeria that is so religious, so conservative. Things are not working well there. And then you look around the world. Most of the countries that are so conservative, conservative things are not working well there. But where there is liberalism, that's where things are working well. And you can just imagine it. Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, yeah, all those countries, they are they nothing to, to write to them about. So I just want to underline what you have said about feminism is I hope it's on the rise, I love it. My, my sister got married to a Muslim and then in those years the man said, look, don't work because I've got enough money to support you. But for the last 10 years, she has been the uh, bread, bread winner, winner of bread the whole family. <laughs> family, even. <laughs> so Nigeria is still a conservative society, yeah. just as you said, and I want us to take it like that. I've got quite a bit more to say, but I'll, because of time... <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to draw a line there,
0: but thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and I'm, I'm blown away by, uh, by you talking, listening to you. It's really inspiring, uh, and anyone who wants to join us, go to Café or they, like continue the conversation? So please, thank, thank you. you.